The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 2:13 through 22. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Lily. Thank you, Jack and musicians, for helping us worship the Lord Jesus. I've never been a soldier, uh, I've never been in the military, and I've actually really never wanted to, to tell you the truth. But I admire this about the military. It's able to, to pluck a young man or young woman out of just the regular civilian life and turn them into something, somebody that they never were before. I can think of my own father, for instance, 1944, he's just an, a skinny little Illinois boy. He had no parents, he grew up in an orphanage, and the United States government calls him and says, you're, you're, going, you're going over to Germany. And so they took this, they took this boy and they, and they formed him into somebody who can stand straight up tall and who's got confidence and can handle weapons and is actually, frankly, just trained to be able to kill the enemy. He puts him, the government puts him in a, in a, a company, in a, a platoon, in a community and, and puts them together. They're watching out for one another and they're going over to, to France, and they're, basically the mission was to kick the Germans out of France all the way back to Germany. So, so he turned into a different person. He had a community that was around him, that supported him, that he was a part of, that he cared for, and he was given a mission, and he succeeded in that mission. I think about nurses. You know, you take a young woman who's never, ever dispensed drugs or, or uh, injected somebody or stuck a needle in somebody or a tube in somebody or, or, or stitched somebody up or even just maybe even seen, ever seen the inside of a person's body and all that blood. And, and, and you turn them into somebody who's confident and knows what to do to save lives. And you put them on a hospital floor and they're a part of a community, part of a group, and they look out for one another. So that if, if somebody pushes the code blue button or just yells out in the hallway, code blue, or I need help, all the nurses drop what they're doing to go help that patient who maybe the heart stopped beating or is needing great, great help. Because they've got this one mission that they know they, we, we can't let anybody die. On, nobody can die on our floor. That's their mission. Their mission really is to get everybody safely home. So they work together in that way. I think about firemen. You know, where, where you taught your children correctly so, by the way. When the house is on fire, Run! Run away from fire, run away from danger, and yet we, 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 we talk to firemen, firewomen, and we, we change them into somebody that, that walks toward the fire 
runs toward the fire, walks into the building, maybe a tall, tall building, and saves lives. They're a community that look out for one another. They don't leave each other behind. And maybe they're going to die, but that is their mission to save lives. And that's what firemen do. If you're not any one of those, a soldier, a nurse, or a fireman, let me describe you now this way. And you may say this isn't me, but it is you. You used to be lost at sea in cold, cold water, hypothermia setting in to kill you, make you numb to anything spiritual. The water's cold, there are sharks, you can't even see them, you're surrounded by sharks. When you're in the water, you can't see the sharks, but we can see from aboard the ship. A storm is coming, a raging storm is coming. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ plucked you out of the sea, out of the raging sea. Somebody pulled you out of the sea and put you on board the ship cold and shivering and smelling like seawater and seaweed. You look around and it's filled with people on board the ship and they were the same way, plucked out of the water just like you. And you entered into a community, a community that was rescued from the sea. And you're headed somewhere. The ship is headed toward a shore. And, and, there, and the gospel has been your guiding light as you journey on there. And, and what you do on board that ship is you care for one another. All the other people that are plucked from the sea and you make sure that they're okay and you make sure that nobody jumps overboard and you watch for each other and love one another and you care for one another until you get to shore. And while you're going over there, you pluck more people from the sea that just like you, that's what you do. And that is a church of God's glory. Next week, Daniel chapter 1. Today, we review. We rehearse. What has transformed us? Who are we together? What is our mission? How does Redeemer live as a church of God's glory? Well, first of all, everything starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite, unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
Look at just a few things Paul says about the gospel of our salvation. For instance, we are chosen by God. We're chosen to join his family. It's totally by his grace and nothing we have done. What a comfort to know that God chooses nobodies. Here's a church, this church is a church filled with nobodies. I'm a nobody. If you think you're somebody, then you're not in God's family because God doesn't choose somebodies. He chooses nobodies. And I like it that he doesn't choose us because of our family heritage. I like it that God chooses us not because of our beauty. Oh man, am I glad that he chooses us not based on beauty. He doesn't choose us based on intelligence. Oh, praise the Lord, he doesn't choose us based on intelligence. And he doesn't choose us on, by, by way of money. And the most important thing is it, it, not, not because of anything good that we've done. Wow, I'm all qualified to be chosen by God. It's all of his grace. We just look around and say to ourselves every time we get together, like, I don't deserve this. We were chosen, so we're humble. Believers are humble. The church is humble because it realizes it's nothing about us that puts us into the family of God, and that ought to cause humility. Secondly, we're adopted to Christ. We're adopted to Christ. Now, a pregnancy, we say a pregnancy was unintended. A pregnancy, a birth was accidental. See my three kids here? Uh, these were all planned. And then there's this fourth one. <laughs> he was an accident. You know, that kind of thing happens. But, but we're, we're glad he's here. There's no such thing as an unintended adoption. No one accidentally adopts somebody. No, no, it's, it, it's very, very intentional. We belong to a new family. We all have access to the Father. His name, his house, his dinner table, and to an inheritance. The family of God is every race and nation and language and culture and gender and age. It's the rich and the poor and the educated and the uneducated. We're adopted, so we accept all. We don't exclude anybody at Redeemer that names the name of Christ, no matter where they have come from, no matter what they look like. All are accepted into the family of God. So it is for the church then. Paul also says we're forgiven of all our trespasses. Now because we're forgiven of all our trespasses, I think that Christians ought to be experts on forgiving. Most of you have never written a book before, but I think you could write a book. You could write a book on forgiveness. Why shouldn't you do it? You're an expert on forgiveness. Why are you an expert on forgiveness? Because you have sinned, and as I have, against a holy, infinite, eternal God, and he's forgiven us. So you and I know how to forgive people. That's what we should do. Here's the question I have to ask you. Do, do you forgive instinctively? Or is there this lag time between what somebody has done to offend you and your, your decision-making about whether or not you're going to forgive them? Is it a couple days? Is it a couple weeks? And then you make the decision? Is that how God did it? You've been forgiven of all of your sins. How do you possibly compare what someone has done to you with what you have done to God? No, no, we're forgiven. So we forgive. No strings attached. We forgive. We're also rich. And don't deny it. Don't deny it. We're rich. We have an inheritance. In fact, we're filthy rich. Remember this, that, that wealth is measured not by the world, but by God. And what does he say? He says, says that um, the poor have the kingdom of God. The poor 
have the kingdom of God. Paul told Timothy to tell the wealthy in his church to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. Oh, we are all very, very wealthy. And so what does that mean? If we're rich and wealthy, so we give. We're rich, so we give. We give generously all that we have to everyone who needs something in the community, within the church, for the sake of mission, we give. Then finally, Paul says we're purposed. In Ephesians 1, purpose. There's a purpose of his will. God has a plan. I guess that shouldn't surprise you that if anybody has a plan in this universe, it's going to be God. He has a purpose for everything, and he's the only one that always has his plan fulfilled. Listen, we want to, we want to glorify God. He says twice, Paul does, to the praise of his glory. Well, what does that mean then? Well, that affects our praying. It affects our prayers. We want the will of God to be done in everything that we're doing. That's what we're thinking, Lord, your will to be done, your glory. It affects our songs. We want to sing to the glory of God in Christ. It affects our priorities, obviously. The Christian life, you guys, is, is a marathon. Oh my goodness, a marathon through mountains and valleys and deserts and swamps. So our priorities at Redeemer, what we're really doing is training everybody, not just to run the race, but to actually win the race. The decisions that we make, the plans and programs that Redeemer have are largely just built upon helping everybody be trained to be a better persistent runner so that you win the race. That's what we're doing. And that's because that's a part of God's purpose. We are purposed so we praise God. Our constant aim is the glory of God in all the things that we're doing. What we became in Christ, what we are in Christ, what we have in Christ is due to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gave us all for us and he gives us everything. This shapes and controls everything we do. That, that's what's going to be true of a, of a church for the glory of God. But then community, that leads to community. Here's what Paul says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 11. He says that we Gentiles were separated from Christ, aliens, strangers, without God and without hope in this world. And then he says, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off and have brought, been brought near by the blood of Christ. For, you see, he himself is our peace and has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Community is what happens whenever Christians get together. You really don't have to give them much instructions. It's what believers do when they get together. Here's what we need to practice at Redeemer. No matter how much we grow, and we are growing, for some reason we're growing, no matter what, community compels us. It's got to control us. We remind ourselves that there is, for instance, in this text, one citizenship. One citizenship. When we get together, several things happen. Like We remind ourselves that we represent the eternal city, not Washington, D.C. When we get together, we remind ourselves that in Christ, we're not really American at all. We belong to Christ. We have, a, we have in Christ a perfect president or governor or mayor, whatever you want to say. His constitution and laws are perfect. When we get together, we often end up sharing how we feel like aliens and strangers and sojourners on the way to the city of the real citizenship. And that's comforting. When we get together, we can talk and say, like, I feel like I don't belong here on this, in this world anymore. And we say, yes, there's a reason for that, because you're not a citizen of this world. You're a citizen of the world that is to come. That's why you feel like a stranger. That's why you feel like a foreigner, because you are a foreigner. Paul says a little bit later, then there is this image of community in one building, a holy temple. No temple in Jerusalem can represent Christ. It's the church that's the temple of God. Since the gospel resides in the church of Jesus Christ, it's the members of the church that represent God. It's the church that unites a sinner. This is what happens at a temple. A sinner is united with the holy God through some sort of a sacrifice, and that's what we do. We represent how a sinner comes to be in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The Bible also tells us that we're living stones in a great building where Christ is the cornerstone. All kinds of different stones bonded together with Christ. No stone more important than another. But each placed strategically by the master stone mason. Now you just look at these cinder blocks or whatever those blocks are right there and you just think about, you don't say to yourself, which one of those is not, is not as important as the other. You, you don't take a hammer and... and, and knock one of them out and say it doesn't really, really matter. But it does matter. It does matter. And whatever stone is, is, is broken out of there, that affects the two on top of it and the two below it and the one on the right and the left. It does affect. You, your, your presence, your absence may not affect absolutely everybody, but it affects the, the people that you're closest to and the ones that you are around. And so your, your presence is important. And when we look at a building, you know, you're not really a wall. You're, you're, you're part of a building. We don't focus our attention on one of the stones or one of the bricks, but we look at the whole thing. We don't say, hey, hey, look at me. I'm one of the stones, but we look at what the building is as it represents Christ. That's what we do together. You're not, a, you're not a foundation. You're not a roof. You're not a door or window. We're all stones meant for people to see the building. Who is Christ? Now, listen, it can be a real challenge to practice being a citizen of an eternal country that you've never really formally seen or been to before. Especially when it's obvious that you're a United States citizen. It could be hard to believe you belong to a new household when you feel like you're barely managing the household you're in right now. 
And it can seem too abstract to see yourself together with one another as flawed saints as any building of, of, of any kind of sort. That can be hard to see, especially if the building is even a temple. That's why I like that another of Paul's metaphors for the church is that we, we are a single body. The church is a body with a single head. A body is exactly what I can imagine. I've been walking around in a body for several decades, and so I really, really pay attention to my body. I have a lot of practice. So we're one body. We don't, you guys, we don't ignore or rebuke our bodies at all when they're thirsty or hungry or tired. If your stomach is growling this morning, you're not rebuking your stomach. You're saying, hey, buddy, I'm sorry. I'm going to get some food in you as soon as we get out of this service. If you thought you were going to be thirsty, it's like, I'm not going to tolerate thirst. I'm going to bring myself a, a water bottle or something like that because I, I got to pay attention to that. And you may hate being tired, but you don't just say, like, I'm just going to ignore being tired. You're going you're gonna to get some rest. You pay attention to your body. You don't ignore it. That's what we do. We pay attention to the physical needs of the church body, but, but even more importantly, the spiritual needs. We pay attention to bruises and cuts and bleeding and pain. If you so much as, as, as stub a toe, even your pinky toe, you're, for me, there will be an interesting array of words that will probably come out of my, my mouth and then I will collapse horizontal on the floor, holding that little, dumb little pinky toe that nobody even knows what it's for other than finding furniture when it, the lights are out. That suddenly becomes the focus of our attention. You know, it's way down there, but boy, when you stub it, you pay attention to it. We don't let ourselves bleed. We don't let ourselves get infected. We, we do something about it. It grabs our attention. You know, the infant mortality rates go down for sickly newborns in, in hospitals just simply when nurses pick them up and touch them and talk to them and hug them. I mean, independent of medicine and technology, you reduce infant mortality rates by tenderly paying attention the little babies. And so we must do the same thing in church. It's dangerous when a body part loses feeling. We want our church to feel no pain, just like we want our, our, any body part of ourselves to feel no pain. What is truly dangerous is not feeling pain, but not feeling anything at all. Think about that leg that falls asleep or your arm that falls asleep. It's the weirdest thing in the middle of the night. You've been sleeping on your arm and then you, you sort of get up and you, it, it, it's so weird. You, you're, you're, you know, your left hand reaches over there. What is that? Oh, what is that blob right there? It's some little fleshy thing, but somebody put an arm in my bed. You know, what is the kind of a practical joke is this? But then it comes back and, and heaven forbid your leg should fall asleep if you get up in the middle of the night and say, go to the bathroom. You know, that could turn out to be a disaster. It's not a good thing. Do you know about leprosy? A long time it was just conceived of as we can't figure out why body parts are disintegrating and getting diseased and decaying and just like getting nasty and falling off. Especially it would be in peripheral body parts like fingertips and toes, ears, nose, eyelids, um, lips and things like that. They would, get, they would just start to fall apart. But then they found that it was a bacteria that was causing it. And what it was doing was not affecting the tissue, it was affecting the nerves that go to those tissues. And all feeling was lost. And so then people throughout their normal activities of life would get cuts on their toes or, or feet or hands or, or lips or eyelids and things like that. And, 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 
and, and they wouldn't pay attention to it. So you, listen, you guys, when, when your ears fall off, decay off, and your eyelids fall off, and your nose falls off, and your lips falls off, you know what you look like? You look like a skull. And, and that's what's that's so hideous about that disease, and that's why they have to cover their faces, and that's why they, they leave society because they look so horrendously ugly. But it's all because they've, they haven't been paying attention to what normally happens to us, cleaning out the wound, removing the piece of glass or the splinter, or something like that. That's what happens with it. When you, when you stop feeling things, you stop caring about things. The farther you get away from church or fellowship, the more numb you become to spiritual things. So interesting to me in my years of ministry that how quickly people often do in the church the dumbest thing that they could possibly do. I'm angry at somebody at church. I'm upset with somebody. I'm hurt. I'm too tired. I'm too busy. So I'm going to, and I'm not feeling anything at all. And so what do they do? They walk away from church. Dumbest thing that you could do. You did exactly the dumbest thing when you walked away from church. Sometimes we have to be reminded that we're sick or broken. I had a soccer player that I've never forgotten, Carl, who was the toughest soccer player that I've ever coached. And one time he got slide tackle occurred. He flipped upside down and landed. And then when he, he immediately stood up. He immediately stood up, and I saw his arm, and it was in the shape of a Z right there. And I said, referee, stop. Say, hang on, hang on. And I said, I got, to, I got it over there. And I walked over to Carl in the middle of the field, and I said, Carl, don't look down at your arm right there. And I said, there, your father's right there across the field. You just walk over there. You got to go to the hospital. Never said, ouch, never said anything. Later on, Carl said, you know what, Coach Sandberg, the truth of the matter is, is that I think I don't really feel pain all that much. It's not that I'm so tough, but I don't feel pain. You may say to yourself, I, I wish I was that sort of a person that didn't feel pain. Really? Is that wise in the world that we live in not to feel something? Should we let other church members not feel something? No, I don't think so. We have to stay alert. Some body parts are very, very easy to ignore. I only pay attention to my toes when I stub one. I mean, it's, it's as far away from my eyes as, as can be as my toes. I don't pay attention to But One thing I like about, and I'm not stereotyping all women this way, but I notice that many women actually put toenail polish on their toes. They, they have noticed their feet and put nail polish on it. And if it, I don't think, if I, speak, if I speak for all the men in here, it would never occur to you to put some sort of paint on your toenails. You don't even know you have toes until you stub one. I even, sometimes women will even put a ring on a toe. A toe, it's called a toe ring. <laughs> but you know what? I like that because the, the, the body part that seems so small and is farthest away, they're paying attention to it. And, that, and we have to be that way as a church too. I'm not saying we have to put rings on the forgotten members or toenail polish. We've got to pay attention to those that are easy to ignore. The problem with losing feeling is you don't know what the problem is occurring, and so it's getting worse. You have to stay alert to the church member who's getting disconnected. If everyone is a member of a smaller group, each member of the church can be accounted for. You can't actually be, account for every single member of the church, but in whatever the small groups that are formed, you can, you can pay attention to a handful, maybe even a large handful of church members. Remember this also, you guys, 
the bodies grows, they change and develop. And, and we don't like that all the time. You used to be about somewhere around seven pounds one time, and now you are whatever it is that you weigh. You're the same person. I mean, think about it, just the, all the changes. You, you've, you've added height and weight, but you're the same person. It wasn't easy. It's not easy growing up, but you're the same person. You may have, I mean, good night. You have scars. You may have some organs removed, prosthetic devices, implants, but you remain the same. Your skin is gone about every 27 days. Nobody does at the end of the month look in the mirror and say, who are you? I've never seen you before. That's brand new skin. It's just you. You know that's you. Bodies change, and it can be hard. But we can handle it because we're the same. The gospel keeps us the same. We have the same Lord, right? A healthy church changes in big and small ways. Some changes are intentional. Some are unexpected and even painful, actually. But healthy churches maintain their core values. They hold tight to them. And that's because the one unchanging thing is actually our Lord. What's the unifying thing in community? One Lord. Paul says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You guys, I appreciate sincerely, I mean this, the, the reflection of Jesus Christ that I see in so many of you. I'd like to think you've seen the reflection of Christ in me before, but I enjoy that. And yet I, I know that, that not a single one of you reflects Christ perfectly. But it's a funny thing, when the church gets together, it does a marvelous job, almost, almost a perfect job of the reflection of Christ. As we all come together with our various gifts and strengths and experiences and different amounts of faith and things like that, it reflects Christ even better when we get together in a group. This is what makes Sunday so utterly unique. This is why meeting together in other groups is so vital. You and I, and for that matter, unbelievers actually see Jesus more clearly when multiple spirit-filled believers come together. Gospel, community, on mission. Look to chapter 3 and verse 6. There Paul says that the Old Testament generations did not know this mystery. He says that this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Then Paul says... Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the least, very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Three things quickly. We go to, because of the gospel, together we go to the unreached. For Paul, this means the Gentiles. For us, really, it really means the same thing. Anyone who has not heard or understood the gospel. Listen carefully to me. Let me suggest this to all of us. Some of you have thought, 
And we all know what it's like, or most of us do, to live in the Bible Belt South where everybody you see claims to be a Christian. That's, that's what they claim is their religion. They're perfectly happy. They don't want to hear anything from you. You would rather talk to a Muslim or an atheist or uh, your Protestant them than your Protestant or Catholic friend who's self-righteous. Of course I'm a Christian neighbor. You'd rather talk to somebody hard who's never heard the gospel before than to talk to somebody down here that, where everybody's a Christian. But remember that this person is unreached, or at least I could call them unreached because they don't really know the gospel. It's another version of the gospel that Americans have heard, and it's another Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. So instead of saying like, well, I'm not going to, I don't need to talk to all these people around because they all claim to be Christians. Maybe they're not Christians because maybe they don't know the gospel, really. And maybe they don't know the real Jesus. So they are are unreached. We may not be introducing our neighbor or co-neighbor to the name of Jesus, but you can work out a chance to describe the real Jesus and the complete gospel. I know you can. We also go to the dark. I have my sympathy for those who have to go into crawl spaces. Maybe there's a little light on their head right there or underground tunnels or sewer pipes or caves. I don't want, I don't want those jobs at all. I don't want any job where you have to turn a light on. I don't want to have any job where you have to crawl. I don't want any job where you have to crawl and it's also kind of slimy and wet. I have sympathy for law enforcement officers who have the night shift because that's when all the bad things happen. May God bless those who have to search uh, in the middle of the night for a lost child. We know what it's like to be delivered from the domain of darkness, as Paul said to the Colossians. We know that, you and I do. We came from the dark, and, and we've got to go back to the dark to rescue people, souls, from the domain of darkness and bring them to the light of the gospel. Isn't that something? You came from the darkness Christ saved you, and then he says, you know what? You guys got to go back. You got to go back and rescue people. They're in the dark. This remains and has to remain the unchanging mission of Redeemer, to bring people to the light. And then finally, and I have to say this, it's a part of Paul's life, it's part of this epistle, to prison and death. Maybe? Paul says, don't lose heart from what I'm suffering. Remember that Paul is writing from a prison cell. Very, very soon he's going to be decapitated by Caesar for the gospel. We don't know what that kind of suffering is like. We certainly don't know what it's like to die for the gospel. But I have to say that this is a part of the bargain of the mission. It is. In any case, in some way, we all suffer the loss of something when we stay on mission. You're going to lose something if you proclaim the gospel. You are. If we tell the truth of the gospel, it could go to prison and death. But the mission of the church, no matter what, is, is, is going to be to tell people how to leave the light at night and come into the light. And really, dying for Christ is the greatest of all honors. But So no matter what changes in Redeemer, we've got to stay on mission. That's what we do. Gospel, community, mission. You may not have resonated with anything I've said today. I wonder if you could do this. It might seem obscure, but I want you to think about something. 
I'm done, but watch this. So every once in a while, I will go to YouTube and I will watch a particular video. It is the British rock group Coldplay. They're playing a concert in Sao Paulo, Brazil, in a soccer stadium, 100,000 people. And it's not the music that I'm watching, it's the people in the crowd. Quite amazing. 100,000 people, shoulder to shoulder. They don't care anything about personal space. Both hands are raised in the air. They sing every single word, not in their native language. They sing it in English, every single word of every single song, as loud as they possibly can. And by the way, on pitch. The song that I watch is called Fix You. Coldplay's song, Fix You. Tears are flowing. They're not in the least bit embarrassed about anything. For two hours, they have not one single disagreement. Somebody is leading them in the song, Fix You. It's a religious experience is what it is. So I look at the video through the eyes of, as if I was a sociologist or a psychologist, and through the eyes of being a theologian, and say, what's happening? Well, they've got a leader. They're unified in one single thing. They know the songs by heart. They're singing with all of their might. And why wouldn't you love this song? This is how it begins. When you try your best, but you don't succeed. When you get what you want, but not what you need. When you feel so tired, but you can't sleep. Stuck in reverse. And the tears come streaming down your face. When you lose something, you can't replace. When you love someone, but it goes to waste. Could it be worse? Now, why wouldn't 100,000 Brazilians say, that song's for me, that song's about me. I shall sing it with all of my might. But it ends this way. It comes to the end, and the lead singer and, and the, the writer of the song, Chris Martin, he just stops singing, and he just turns around, walks back toward the band, and the crowd finishes the song for him as loud as they can. With tears in their eyes, they say, lights will guide you home and ignite your bones, and I will try to fix you. But they won't. Nobody can fix you. You can't fix me, and I can't fix you, and you can't fix you. Only Jesus Christ can. The thing about this song is, is that everybody is, is accidentally saying, I am broken, and you're broken, and, and you need fixing, and, and I'm going to try to fix you, but you can't do it. Because Jesus Christ is the only one that fixes you. Now, if you're, if you're a believer, and if you're in this church, you came broken. You are broken. You are broken. You needed fixing. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you came to Jesus for fixing. And Jesus fixed you. And he's fixing you. 
and you're going to be fixed brand new. If you can't say that, that you are broken, you cannot come to Christ. He does not save or fix perfect things. He fixes broken things. So when we come together in the church, we come together as people that were broken, and that's what we all have in common. We're not looking around and saying somebody's better or smarter or something or gooder than I am. We're all broken. You were born broken. And we come together, we remind ourselves that Christ fixed us. And we need help with that fixing. And then we also say, wait a minute, if I was broken and I got fixed, then other people are broken and they need fixing and I'm going to bring them to Jesus Christ. That's what we do. So friend, friend, if you walked into this building this morning and you said, like, I'm not broken you, you couldn't be, you're, you're the most broken of all if you can't understand that you're broken. But there is somebody to fix you, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we do, and the gospel changes us and turns us into a, a, a church that glorifies God by coming together as broken people and coming to the fixer because that's who Jesus is, the great fixer of our souls. Pray with me, please. Father, I ask again for the grace that you give your children to remind us of certain important things. I ask you to help us to remember that we are all the same sort of person, just broken, and that you've chosen us and brought us into your body um, by your grace. And we all need help and must pay attention to one another to help one another to grow stronger, to keep going, to not give up, and also to bring broken people, broken people to Jesus. Remind us of it, help us to not grow weary in doing that. And certainly I pray for anybody here who's afraid to admit that they're broken, that you would give them that understanding today. Today they would come to you, Lord Jesus, the great fixer of our souls. Here I pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.